Empower Radio presents The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. We're in the midst of whole systems change and transformation on the planet. This includes major breakdowns in systems and structures, a global pandemic that has dramatically changed life as we knew it, political unrest, deep cultural wounds surfacing to be healed, and of course, loss and death of all kinds. Many of us are feeling a mix of emotions including anxiety, despair, sadness, and anger. We might not recognize all this as grief, but we are grieving. Grief expert Claire Willis joins us to talk about our individual and collective grief. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, open your mind and heart, and settle into your essential wholeness as I introduce our guest. Claire Willis, a clinical social worker, has been working in the fields of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years. Her work and her life experience were the primary sources of inspiration for Opening to Grief. It's a beautiful, beautiful, yummy book here I have in my hand, and it says, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. I highly recommend it. Claire has led bereavement, end-of-life support, and therapeutic writing groups. She has co-taught spiritual resources for healing the mind, body, and soul, and maintains a private practice in Brookline, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you here, and I'm going to put you on the spot today and have you perhaps <laughs> even talk about things you weren't even planning on talking about. But first, Uh-oh. Claire, yeah, look out. I know you. I trust that you will have incredible wisdom to share for us with us but first we do have a traditional first question here on the show claire i like to kind of put our conversation in a larger meme a, a whole world view and so i like to ask my guests if you could share with our listeners what does all things connected mean to you um in one sentence what happens to one of us happens to all of us, that our well-being is intricately bound up with one another. Beautiful. That is a beautiful introduction. That's the first thing that came to my mind. It's perfect. That's and, the first you know, thing that I thought of, yeah. Yeah. As as I think of putting you on the spot and talking about things that maybe you hadn't planned on talking about, that is the perfect lead-in. But before we go there… I'll keep you in suspense and our listeners in suspense, <laughs> Claire. Let's just begin with what you, as a grief expert and bereavement expert, what do you mean when you use the word grief? And what is it? How does it manifest? What is grief? How does it manifest in our lives? Let's just begin with grief, and then I'll I'll expand on this. Okay. Um, the first thing I want to say is I'm not an expert. Um, 
each person is an expert on their own grief. I, I'm only someone who has a lot of experience with grief and a deep interest in this field. So I, I just want to correct that introduction. And while I'd love to be an expert, I don't think any of us are experts for other people. So, you know, grief is a, an interesting word because most of us think about it as um, sorrow, sadness, despair, depression, but grief expresses itself through a variety of emotions. It's actually an umbrella kind of word under which many feelings exist. So some of the more common feelings, um, besides the normal ones we think of as sorrow and sadness, are um, irritability, impatience, anger, restlessness, inability to concentrate. Gratitude is actually also an expression of grief. Numbness is an expression of grief. Regret guilt. There are many, many words that we have that describe people grieving. And one of the things that's problematic often in families is when people are grieving differently, that people don't understand that other people are grieving, but that their grief looks different than theirs. So that's an important thing to start out with. When I talk about the word grief, I think about it as um, a normal reaction to loss of any sort. But I also want to frame it in a little bit different context as well. And I want to read um, a couple of sentences from somebody, I wish I'd written this, named Jamie Anderson. And this is the way I frame grief, that grief is love. Grief is really just love. It's all the love you want to give but cannot. All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes the lump in your throat and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. Claire, I love that. I love the example of grief and love. And I, I have another quote of yours that I'm going to bring in later because I think it's a real poignant um, kind of a roadmap for us that brings that all together and understanding our path. So thanks for bringing in the idea of our differences. And you write a lot about that in this book. And um, and I just want, I when you said you're not an expert, I just heard you're an expert witness of so much grief. And, and as a witness, you have literally sat with people in different stages and different expressions. And, and you write about that. I, I really, really, really appreciate that. So what I wanted to do is, is take us on a journey from really looking at what's going on on the planet here, because as you said, no. what happens to one no. happens with all. So <laughs> bear with me. And then we'll go into that individual expression and then we'll go into some of the medicine because you have some really beautiful suggestions for us in the healing of grief in mm -hmm. the book and, and really tending to it. I, I love this idea, but nearly all of us are feeling grief of some sort right here right now we're typically we typically think of of grieving when we lose a loved one that we hold dear but really our individual grief is compounded with this collective grief we're all feeling right now and you acknowledge this in the note of the book um opening to grief you wrote the book before the pandemic and then it's going to publishing and you write a really beautiful note just acknowledging what we're all moving through and now it's been almost a whole year since you wrote that note um 10 months i think since you wrote that note what i would love to do 
Claire, is invite you to speak about what you've learned in this last year since writing the book about our collective grief and, and maybe how that is affecting other individuals in their own individual paths. You know, I think that grief for the last year has, to just to use a metaphor, has been like the wallpaper in our homes. We've learned to live with it, and the walls are gray. But I, I remember when I got my second vaccination, and I realized uh, that I could move around with more freedom. I realized then what I had been holding back and not uh, actually realize was there until I felt this exhilaration after my second shot. Um, I think sometimes we're busy coping with the, the changes that have been wrought by um, COVID, which I think has been not only a pandemic of a virus, but it's a pandemic of fear. It's been a pandemic of division. It's been a pandemic of grief. And so I think when we're coping with something, often we can't deal with it. And when we're dealing with something, we can't cope. So often we just have to do the next steps to get through something. And when it's over, we start to see what we, to feel and deal with what we've been through. And I think that there's going to be a time now as more of us emerge from being, uh, you know, isolated to realizing what we lost more fully. And I think there may be a time that comes with, gratitude and grief intermingled in the forthcoming weeks and months. I think the other thing that I just want to mention about COVID and the impact of the last year is that anything, it, it, it brought loss to all of us, as you said, in some way or another. It, you know, David Brooks, I, I write this in my book, had a column he wrote almost a year ago to the day asking people how they were faring. And they talked about that there was this river of woe, this river of grief that was just running through our culture. And it's a great metaphor because water touches everywhere. Water goes everywhere. You can't control water. And I think one of the things besides creating losses in our daily life, and for many people, it's been deaths, it's been loss of job, economic stability, it's been many things, but also any grief from our earlier life that we didn't grieve has probably been torn open during this time, because what we don't tend to will keep asking for our attention until we turn towards it. So I've, that's been my experience hearing people talk about old losses emerging in the face of this macro loss. Mm, that's a really good point. I really appreciate you bringing that piece in that, that any grief from our earlier life that we have not healed begins to emerge. Thank you for that. There's right. such wisdom in a, a few things you said that I, I, I want to pause and deepen into this. Um, the idea of the wallpaper is really profound. Thanks for that metaphor, because we do just kind of cope with it, don't we? It's kind of like, yeah, um, it, it really is a peculiar thing. Like, oh, our new normal, there is no new normal. The old normal's gone. And we, the thing that you said was when we're yeah. dealing with it, we're really not moving toward healing yet. So say more about the difference between just dealing with it and coping with the gray wallpaper. Well, that, so um, 
I think there's a couple of ways to think about this. Um, when I work with people with cancer, the first things they have to do when they've been diagnosed is to find a doctor, find a hospital, um, find a treatment plan. And it's not often until those tasks are accomplished that they begin to sit and realize the ramifications of their disease and how it's going to impact their life. And I think it's also the same way when we lose a loved one. We're, we're overwhelmed with the details of closing their life, of planning a funeral, dealing with family and friends, just letting people know there are tasks that you have to do. And so you're coping with the reality of what's happened. And often it's not until the end of that period of coping that we begin to feel into more deeply the loss of what we've just experienced. So that when we're coping, we can't really deal. And when we're dealing, we can't often cope. And so we have to choose which we're going to do when. Mm. Oh, there's such wisdom there. Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I imagine everyone can relate to that, that when, when we're in the middle of it, we're dealing with what's right in front of us. And a lot of times that is the the social work aspects the, the you know, they're like, just like yes. you said, it's like, yes. find all the things for this next place. And then woo, it hits us. So when we really look at what's happening on the planet with COVID this last year, the same thing is like, Oh, um, sheltering in place, social distancing. Oh, making my office at home. Oh, trying to deal with education of my children. Oh, getting groceries a new way. Oh, and so we've kind of, we perhaps are still in this phase, but you're, you're right. There's this, there's this lingering um, reminder out there of the grief yet to come that life as we knew it is gone. The dreams some people had of it gone financial issues of grief are there, job loss, people loss. It's not just the deaths of loved ones during this pandemic. Mm. That's right. That's right. There, there are very subtle losses and there's not so subtle losses. But I think, I think we have to grieve the life we had because I don't think any of us are ever going to return to the life we had in the fullness we had it because we know something now we can't unknow. And there is, I mean, not to be grim, but there have been predictions that because of what we've done to the environment, that there, it's a matter of time before another virus comes along. You know, I, I don't know that to be true, but I, 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 there's a part of me that thinks we're going to be wearing masks for quite a while, um, even though we're vaccinated. So it's just hard to know. But our, the welfare of the environment is certainly tied up with our health. And we've learned that in ways that it's been just put in our face in ways that we can't turn away. Yeah. Claire, you mentioned water. And when you're talking about the environment and the degradation, that the water touches everything and we are water. And so even the idea of not having pure, healthy water affects us and can affect us into the future. So it is a really complicated um, path that we're trying to navigate now as we, as we look at health and yeah. the future and recovery here. Mm. Yeah. And I think we're seeing even more deeply all things connected, you know, to your first question. Yeah. We're it's really hard. We isn't can't it? separate. Yeah. Yeah. We, 
we can't separate from one another. We can't separate from the water, the earth, the soil, the, the air. Right. We can't separate from that virus. And we can't separate That's from right. Mother Nature, who's literally, yeah, created. So here we are on the earth. Nothing's going back. So I'm wondering, as, you know, I, I lost my mother in June. And um, oh. we were still, and, and I, I feel this even to this day, your example of um, beginning the process of grieving when you're in the middle of it, I imagine there are so many people still in the middle of coping with the pandemic and the major life changes that we really haven't yeah. had the time to deepen into grief. What would you say to those listening who maybe are carrying deep, deep grief and yet are still in survival mode and, and don't have the spaciousness to do this work right now? I would say stay in survival mode as long as you need to. And when it settles, allow yourself some time to have the feelings that you couldn't feel in the crisis and be kind to yourself. Mm. Let them come because it's an expression of what you've loved and lost. And we need to make room for expressing love. Yeah. Claire, one of the things that I'm curious about, um, and I just want to um, thank you for for literally allowing me to expand and stretch this conversation into the global, into the planetary grief, our collective grief, because it is really, really important. And then after the break, we'll go into that individual process more and, and into your beautiful suggestions. But as I'm thinking about grief, um, my my intuitive sense is that our individual grief heals our collective grief. And so therefore it's very important that we do this work, but I'm wondering, we also look outward through the media, through the lens of others. And we see so much happening. I'm thinking even the cultural healing of, of blacks and indigenous and others where there's, there's a need or a sense of a need, to heal the collective. I'm wondering if you have any other wisdom before we dig deeper into our individual process of grieving of what might we need as a culture to do that collective healing right now? This is a really good question. It's not one I've given a ton of thought to, but I think you know, I wrote a blog a few months back about this. It's funny, I haven't thought about it till you're mentioning this, but I talked about how the way we talk, the language we use to describe the destruction of our Mother Earth. And we use these technical language like ecological crisis or environmental crisis. Or We don't talk in specificity. We don't talk the way the Native Americans would talk about the land. And we've taken something that's really quite sacred and objectified it for our own consumption. And in doing so, we've distanced ourselves from it. So I think that anything that we're not in relationship to is very easy to abuse and misuse. 
And I think that's really happened with the environment. There's a word, and I can't remember which language it is, but it's called, and I think I wrote about this in the book, solastalgia, which is a nostalgia of the soul for place. And all of us probably have places where we grew up and tried to return to, to visit and found that maybe they were McMansions or maybe the trees were all destroyed or maybe the water's edge had eroded and there was no, there were no um, dunes left, whatever. There's a longing for that, that connection to the earth that is changing. And it's, it's a, it's a very specific kind of grief, but I love the word solastalgia. It's soft. You can almost feel the sorrow in the word. You can almost feel the grief as opposed to we have an environmental crisis, you know, or an ecological crisis, you know. There's something about the way we talk about it that keeps it at bay, and we need to talk about it, I think, differently. I love that word, too. And I, I love you bringing this up. And as you say, the, the Native Americans, the indigenous cultures on, on every continent would talk about it with an intimacy and a relationship. Oh, sacred, sacred. Yeah. And then yeah. imagine their grief when their river oh. becomes toxic or their water is being compromised yeah. for for corporate greed and, and what have you. And so I really appreciate you bringing that solastalgia in because um, right there are some clues for our collective healing of this grief. Um, and, and just the, the other piece that I heard while you were talking is we have to acknowledge the collective grief that we're experiencing. And when we put it into the terms of, of the ecological crisis, instead of my waters um, as an intimate That's relationship, right. you right. know, and it also brings us into Claire, when you were talking, I'm, I'm hearing the creator, you know, the indigenous would, would look at all creation and the creator as one here. And, and we're, taking advantage of it where there's a great loss in front of us so thank you for that that piece because it does personalize the environment and the planet and you know there's some clues here for us too many would not create an association in their mind of the pandemic and what we've done to our planet what we've done to our earth what we've done to our water our land oh my our goodness air. You know, they just wouldn't make that connection. And when you bring that in, it does help us see that all things are connected. If we continue on this trajectory, there's more to come, right? <laughs> yes. Mm. I hate, I don't like to talk about that because it's really ominous, but yeah. I think we have to hold that as a possibility and be ready for it. Yeah. I believe we are in the process of healing that very thing and what it takes for us to wake up to that intimacy to that relationship to to really right. our one planetary body um, perhaps is this grief perhaps is you know what we're going through now so we're going to take a quick break and when we return i want to go more into our individual personal journey of grief and some of your 
beautiful suggestions that you've made for our healing here. So with that, you're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. We're here with Claire Willis. When we return, we'll have so much more on opening to grief. We'll be right back. Meditation Channel. Non-stop meditation music 24 hours a day in the new Empower Radio app. Music to empower your meditation, help you relax, sleep, or provide a calm background while you work. The Empower Meditation Channel is interruption-free. Listen now with the Empower Radio app, free in the App Store, or listen online at empower.fm. Soothe your soul, calm your mind. The Empower Meditation Channel. All right. I know this isn't any fun to talk about, but we should. So, who's going to do what? Flashlights? Nowhere to be found. Where to be found. Batteries? Dead. Great. Emergency supply kits? Not packed. No. What about blankets? We have an old towel. Good enough. Cell phones? May not work. Uh, emergency water? Not a drop. And what about food? Nope. Perfect. We all know where we're meeting if we're separated, yeah? The library! Aunt Joan's house. The bus stop. Great. And I'll be waiting here wondering where you all are. Sounds like we don't have a plan. Who's up for mini golf? Winging it is not an emergency plan. Make sure your kids know what to do during an emergency. Who to call, where to meet, what to pack. Visit ready.gov kids for tips and information. A public service announcement brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. This is a guided meditation on parenting. Take this time to breathe deeply and close your eyes. Right now, you're completely in control. Unlike the time you and your son played basketball and you attempted to slam dunk. Or when you tried removing those raccoons from the basement. Concentrate on the soothing sound of my voice. Release the memory of when you wrestled with that beehive in your son's treehouse. Let go of the time you thought that skunk was a cat, or when you pulled into the garage with your son's bike on top of the car. Deep breaths. Deep breaths. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who don't need perfection. They need you. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Come on, smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. Yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. Or maybe he's teething. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and perhaps listen to it again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. 
Also, stay connected every week with the whole Connection newsletter, Bridging the Divide, where we continue the conversation. I invite you to be a more conscious, courageous, and compassionate co-creator of the beautiful, healthy world we depend on. Come work with me. There are lots of different ways you can do that. And you can check out those opportunities at juliecrawl.com or goodofthewhole.org and sign up for The Whole Connection at juliecrawlemail.com. Again, that's juliecrawlemail.com. You can find Claire at openingtogrief.com. More about the book, more about Claire at openingtogrief.com. Claire, thank you for being brave and wise and an expert witness of others' journeys into grief and allowing me to kind of stretch this into what's happening on the planet. I think it's an incredibly important conversation and your work does help us create the conditions for our individual and collective healing. It's like this mirror that we're holding up here. So I think it's really important. So thank you for your your patience and your acceptance of, of me kind of pushing this a little oh, bit. I appreciate these questions. They're really making me think. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Beautiful. I think it is it's so powerful. And I just want to begin with um, something you wrote, because we're going to dig in a little deeper into the personal journey here. And you wrote, grieving is one of the most difficult experiences that most of us ever face. Grief's terrain is unspeakably painful. There's no end run around grief. There are no easy answers, and there's no one way to grieve. Your grief is yours alone. The good news is you will find your way. You've mentioned that in our show already. And I'm wondering if you can say more about this deeply personal journey that we all take. You wrote about um, the differences in the book. You even mentioned, you know, someone's grief of a spouse can last a couple of months or it could last several years. And I'm just wondering, I'm going to couch that in a secondary question of this personal journey with what do you think creates these profound differences in people's journeys? Mm. Uh, that's interesting. So, yeah, you know, I've, I've actually started to think about the fact that I don't think grief ever ends. I think what happens just to go back to this metaphor of the gray room is when you first lose somebody you love, it, it's, every, it's all you see. It's your whole life, the walls, the ceiling, the furniture, the, the floor, everything in your house is gray. And with the passage of time, that searing grief moves from being uh, unbearable uh, and changes in frequency, duration, and intensity. And so slowly and slowly, color comes back to your room but or your home. But always there remains a gray chair in your living room that you will visit periodically to grieve. It's a little bit like I love this metaphor of a broken bone. You break a bone and it's searing. It's like all you can feel in your body. And then maybe you have surgery and maybe then you get casted and then you have PT and then you're walking again. But on rainy days, that bone will ache, likely. And so it's a little bit like grief. It doesn't go away, but it certainly changes from being unbearable to very bearable. and ultimately many people learn to carry it with a lot of generosity and the desire to give back. Mm. 
I really like the metaphor of the gray chair. So the color comes back to the home, but there's always that gray yeah. chair will visit. What do you think creates the profound differences in from individual to individual? I'm wondering, like I can imagine, I know someone who after the grief began decorating her home in gray. When the color came back, she was consciously bringing gray back in on purpose. And it was a very, very, very long journey for her. What do, do you have any, any insights about that? Um, about the changes? About the differences. Why two months versus several I, years? Well, I think some of it has to do with the context of the relationship. You know, not every relationship is so wonderful. And so oftentimes there's an enormous sense of relief when someone dies. There's some grief, but depending on the level of conflict or, you know, animosity or estrangement or whatever, um, there can be a lot of relief and grief would obviously be shorter. The grief or loss of children is so developmentally unexpected, and that tends to come with a a, a, a kick that is different than losing your 95-year-old mother who had a full life. And so, and I think also the circumstances around a death, how did the person die? Did they die peacefully? Did they die easily? Was there suffering and, and drama around the death? That often can complicate a person's grief because... There's a way in which we tend to fixate on whatever happened in the last moments. And I mean, I, I, I'm working with someone right now who feels that she got upset with her partner just before the death and has had a really hard time reconciling that despite the fact that she gave her partner incredible care uh, for years. But somehow that last moment got fixated. Traumatic death, deaths can be faith shattering and they're very hard to come to terms with because there's such a shock to it. And if it's a violent death, you know, something like a car accident or, or a suicide, those are much more complicated and take much more longer to come into some kind of integration and peace with. Mm. So those are some of the factors that come right to mind as you ask the question. I'm sure there's others, but that's what I'm thinking of right now. Beautiful. So I'm going to bring the love back in. You wrote, grief isn't the only pain and sadness. When you are ready, you may discover that being with grief is a way of transforming suffering. Most people laugh again, even amidst tears. They find purpose, go on and find ways of bringing their loved ones with them. Grief and love are intertwined. By acting generously and connecting with others, many people live fully again. I love this idea that grief and love are intertwined. It's like both sides of a coin. You know, each are a side of the coin. You can't have one with the other. The other, um, you know, because loss is a part of love. So it, it really helps, I think, to understand the path. Can you say more about the relationship with love? You you brought it in earlier, but I think this is a good time to just expand on that. That grief is an expression of deep love. Yeah. We don't grieve what we didn't love. We grieve who and what we love and lost. And I think if, if we come to a point where we're able to hold and the book is each chapter in the book is a way to invite people to hold and strengthen them to be with their grief so that the grief can work 
through them. I mean, ideally, not ideally, but some people find ways after a big loss to give back that they know something about suffering and they become passionate often about a cause that may be related to their loved one's death. And the word passion has its derivation, suffering. So the topics that we, the the areas in life we are most passionate about are often places where we've suffered. We know it from the inside out and we want to try and help others not suffer in the way we do. So I've had, I've had, I think, three podcasts on grief with people who lost children and they've made the death of their child. They've turned that into getting people to come on their show and talk about grief. And in my book, I cite some examples. For instance, I have a colleague whose husband died in 9-11 and she created a grief center in my neighborhood where she's got close to 20 people on the staff all doing bereavement work. So if we can work with it and hold it, we can often find ways to be generous with it and give back in some way. The other thing is that if, even if you're not giving back in a bigger way like that, there are many ways to give back. And if we work with our own grief and find a way to allow all the feelings that come with grief to be there and treat them kindly and just allow the sorrow to wash us clean, we are able to be with others who are grieving. Because often what happens when we lose someone we love is that people will say, my friends, some of my friends just disappeared. And they'll say, and other people I never imagined came forward. I don't understand that. Well, often it's because people don't know their way around or are not comfortable with their own grief. So one of the biggest things you can give, you can give to those you love is to allow grief to wash you so that you can be with others who are grieving. Because we can't be with others if we haven't acknowledged and been able to be with our own grief. It's too painful. Yeah, you said allow grief to wash over us, but you also said allow sorrow to wash over us. And I'm just thinking about how healing that feels to just hear those words, like allowing the sorrow to wash over us. It's not like we're running away from it. It's like move into it um, like a gentle shower and allow it, allow it to do its thing. There's something about that. Mm. Right. Mm. I, there's there's a quote I read. I can't remember who it's by. It's not, these aren't my words, but this author wrote something about if we don't allow grief, we're living against ourselves. We're mm-hmm. living in, in, in conflict with ourselves. And that often results in, in angry, gr- grief that is expressed through anger, which is really common. Um, because it gives us a false sense of agency. Um, And it's easier than tolerating helplessness or hopelessness or vulnerability. If we're not comfortable with those feelings, then our grief goes to anger and we tighten and we harden and it's not good for our immune system and it's not good for, you know, it feeds anxiety and depression. You know, we have sideways, we we start to express it in a sideways way. Yeah. And you say, and I love this, one of the very first things that you suggest in the book, you you say the best way to begin is by being kind to yourself, inviting us to start where we are and 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 not really judge ourselves. So I think as the starting point, say more about kindness. Well, yeah, there's um I can I read an excerpt from a poem? Sure. 
Is, is that okay if I read? Because there's a poem in the first chapter. But I, let me just say this. Marnie and I decided we wanted to start the book with kindness. And in part because part of what motivated me to write the book is I was repeating the same thing in my groups all the time. What you're feeling is normal. Grief will take as long as it does. You will get through the first year of holidays. Here are some suggestions for how to do it. There was a way that people had an idea, and I think it was from hearing about stages of grief in our culture that they somehow weren't grieving right. And there's a Buddhist story about how we shoot at, I think it's called two arrows. So we get one arrow, and that's the that's that's the loss. We feel the grief, the loss of somebody. The second arrow is when we shoot ourselves with criticism, shame, guilt, regret. And that's the arrow. That second arrow is the arrow of suffering. So grief in itself isn't suffering. It's when we can't be with it and we're pushing it away that we suffer more or when we're judging ourselves. So kindness is such an important thing to start with, because if you're not kind to yourself, then you're not going to be able to open to the path of, of loving. I want to read just um, just a little bit of this poem in the first chapter, because I think Naomi Shihab Nye says it so beautifully, and it's called Kindness. This is an excerpt. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Mm -hmm. Thank you for reading that. I want to say to you, dear Claire, um, this book is brilliant. You did mention Marnie, so I just want to presence her name. Marnie Crawford Samuelson is the co-author of this, helped to bring your beautiful experience into alive on these pages in so many different ways. But the book is filled with beautiful poetry and beautiful meditations exercises in every brief chapter and I'm I'm looking through it right now um, in it, it this is a beautiful gift so if you're listening and you're not on a path of grieving right now but you know someone who is this is a beautiful gift it's small it's not a long scholarly book on grieving it <laughs> literally is just medicine it's medicine for the soul well, you know i'm so glad you're saying this julie because I, one of the things that was very interesting is that many of the endorsers and there were some really well-known people that endorsed it called the group the book a companion and the word companion means one with whom you break bread and marty and i wanted the book to help people feel they weren't alone, that the book was a companion to them in their journey. And so that the endorsers picked that up was really important. And my hope is that when people read it, they, they feel their grief or whatever they're feeling is normal and that they aren't alone and that other people have walked this walk. Yeah. 
And you know, the other piece that that I thought of, um, Claire, of moving through this is it's not only a gift for others, but it's a gift for yourself. Even if you're not experiencing active grief right now, it will help you help others and be that companion of others. And we're all facing this at some time in our life. And it just sets this really beautiful, um, nourishing space for us to, to just be who we are with these seasons and cycles of life. So it is a beautiful companion. Thank you for those words. So there's, there's some pieces in here and I'll, we, we just have a, a little bit left. I want to make sure we have time to presence some of these pieces. One of the things that you, you talk about journaling, you talk about art, you talk about nature. Like I mentioned, there's poetry here. Why don't you just speak a little bit about some of the suggestions that you do make to us here in the book of, of going through this journey and and what is so helpful to us as the companion? Um, Let's see. I'll just, I'll just, you want me just to briefly comment on each chapter or sure, do you want me to comment good. on a, on some specific chapters? Okay. No, let's just go. Yeah. So the second, about. okay. The second chapter in the book is called feeling grateful. And someone who's just lost someone might think, why should I feel grateful? I've just lost the most important person in my life. So somehow keeping a gratitude journal is a way to actually strengthen your capacity to hold your sorrow. That's the reason. It's not to obliterate your sorrow. It's not to minimize it. It's to allow your sorrow to be there fully. But it's also an invitation to notice what's right alongside what's wrong. Because our minds are quite negatively habituated. They're hardwired that way. So this is a way, cultivating a gratitude practice is actually a way to strengthen your ability to hold difficulty. So another chapter is called Opening to Mindfulness and Meditation. And in that chapter, one of the things we we asked, well, one of the reasons we included it is that when we suffered a loss, it's very easy to ruminate about the past and catastrophize about the future in the face of the fear and all that goes away with someone we love. And so opening to mindfulness and meditation is an invitation to be in the present moment. Research has indicated that 50% of the time our minds are in the future, 40% they're in the past. And on a very good day, we're in the present moment 10% of the time. And so that this becomes a way to have a gatekeeper watching your thoughts so that you can act and think about things in a more mindful way and maybe catch yourself when you're catastrophizing were ruminating about things and wishing they had been different. Another chapter is called Restoring in Nature. You know, most of us are pretty tied to our electronics and we don't get outside, but there's a lot of research about how being in the natural world helps us with our grief. Um, It asks nothing of us. Our eyes and body and mind go into a receptive mode when we're in the natural world, even if it's just a city pocket park or a small garden. And there's a deep rest that enters us from being outside. And and there's a couple of psychologists called Rachel and Stephen Kaplan who call this restorative environments. And they're just any place outside that's accessible. I think also in the natural world, we get to see that everything's impermanent. And there's cycles of seasons that are cycles of death and renewal. And so that our grief is reflected 
in the natural world. And then in the chapter, we have a chapter on joining together. And that's a, that I, I lead a lot of bereavement groups. And often what happens in my groups is people will say things like, I could only say this here because I know you'll understand. People can finish each other's sentences. And often people will say, like one woman said, I sleep with the bone of my dog. It was her favorite toy. Or I'm sleeping in my husband's shirts because I can still feel his scent. And people understand. Unfortunately, there's been a big privatization of pain in our culture and people lots of times grief carries shame and guilt with it which further isolates people so finding a grief friend or finding a bereavement group or even for instance in Canada there are walking groups where you just walk with a bunch of people who have also lost people they love and they say the name of the person who died when they died and then they walk together in their sorrow they just do that outside so you want me to keep going, Julie? Well, you know what? I love the art and writing part, the journal. If you just want to speak about those two things, I think they're so powerful in our healing modalities sure. and grief's no exception. So, yeah, speak about the art and the journaling and the writing. Okay. Um, in the art, we have a little chapter called Making Art, and it, it we're all artists, and sometimes using images and using the right side of our brain as a source of healing can really be helpful. So we're not making art for the sake of product. We're making art in this chapter for the sake of process. So it, it becomes a source of solace. Sometimes people will make things out of, out of the old clothes of somebody or old photographs, just putting anything together imagistically in ways that have meaning for you can be so sweet. And if we can just allow our inner critics to settle down and allow ourselves to be a beginner, um, it's, it's very nice way, very healing way to heal uh, and work with grief using the other side of our brain and using images. And then writing is the refuge is a, is a, a chapter that's, I use this a lot because I do therapeutic writing groups, but often people write letters to their loved ones. But the act of writing allows us to structure and organize often feelings that we that can swirl around inside of us and, and, and overwhelm us. And James Pennybaker, who's done a lot of research on writing, has talked about how writing about things that bother of us bother us for three to four weeks for up to six weeks actually improves our immune system. One of the exercises that people in my bereavement groups often use, they'll say, there's so many things I don't want to ever forget. And I ask them to start by keeping a journal. I remember and then seeing what comes. And then again, I remember and just collecting memories because we will forget the memories we shared with our loved ones. But if we commit to a writing practice of remembering we can do that. And also people also often um, um, write uh, letters at the end of the day. I want you to know something they may want to say to their loved one who's no longer with us, but they have a little journal of letters to their loved one, which has been very satisfying for a lot of people. So that's, those are some of the suggestions and ideas in, in, in the rest of the book. Yeah, they're beautiful. Thank you. So we have about four minutes left here, and I want to. I really want to create this exclaimer here at the end to make sure 
there are those that need professional help. How does someone know when they need help with their grief? When, oh. you know, whether yeah. they're really depressed and, and what, how yeah. do they know? When do they need professional help? Well, um, there's obvious ways, but some of the more subtle ways is when you're grieving, grieving, grief comes in waves. It comes and goes. You have moments where you're not grieving. You have moments of delight, of pleasure. When you're depressed, there, every moment is gray all day long. So some of the more worrisome signs we look for would be over drinking, uh, using alcohol or pills, um, feeling suicidal, not being able to get out of bed, not being able to get to work, uh, isolating, just completely isolating and becoming sort of non-productive. Um, those are some pretty red flags, I think, um, right there. But normally gr- grief is much more wave-like where it comes and goes. There are moments of light, but with depression, it's gray all the time. Thank you. Thank you. Healthy grief comes and goes like waves. So in a minute or less, Claire, is there anything left unsaid that you'd really like to make sure that you have a moment to, sh- to share with our listeners? Um, I think the most important thing is, I would say, is think of grief as a sacred passage between where you've been and where you're going and just allow yourself not to know where it's going to take you, but trust that it's the energy of love that's allowing you and causing you to grieve and love will not lead you astray. (laughs) Mm, Beautiful words. Thank you. Thank you, Claire, for sharing your wisdom with us and your sacred experience in witnessing so much grief um, it takes a big heart to do what you do and I really appreciate your your wisdom here today and thank listeners, you thank you so much yeah. for having me you're sure welcome and I want to leave you listeners with words from Claire Willis we all need each other we all need other people never more than when we're overwhelmed by grief We need one another to stay sane, to feel that we belong, to take a break, to fix a leaking toilet, to watch a movie together, to talk about the unspeakable events that just happened, to sing, to cry, and to laugh out loud. We need a check-in with a friend, a walk, a tea, a kindness, the presence of another human being who listens and reminds us that everything changes and that someday we'll feel more ease. You've been listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Remember, together we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now. 